0: Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Let's Read the Bible, a podcast where we take a deep dive into biblical topics in a way that's easy to understand. If you'd like to follow along, you can download the YouVersion Bible app and subscribe to the Let's Read the Bible Together reading plan. We also have our
1: plan available on our website, rove.church. And as usual, if you have any questions during the course of your reading or, or even listening along with the podcast, we want to take some time to answer those questions. So we'd love for you to send them in to us. Uh, you can send them in uh, two different ways. One is an email. The email address to send it to is info at uh, Make sure to put the subject on a podcast question, or you can direct message our Facebook page. We are the Grove Church in Washington State. and We'd love for you to DM us there. Uh, also a little quick side note about the reading plan. It is a month over month reading plan. So when you do subscribe or download, make sure you're downloading it to the appropriate month. True. That way you can stay with us currently. So by the time this comes
0: out, we'll be we'll be edging closer to June. To June. So Can you believe
1: sure. it's almost June? This isn't this is crazy to me.
0: It yeah. does feel Anyways. it was funny. I was what well, <laughs> I was talking with someone and they were like, Where is summer? What the heck is going on? I was like, How long have you lived here? <laughs> Like you can't for clarity, we live in Washington State on the west side. So, like you you're not allowed to complain about the lack of sunshine until July and have like <laughs> <laughs> before that, you just sound like you don't know what it's like. I will this say year.
1: this, though, it is it is a considerably wet springtime in comparison to previous years. statistically, I believe this has been the worst spring in decades, exactly. Where so, so a lot of te- rain. technically, people can complain about maybe not summer, but the spring weather is almost non-existent. I feel like this is going to go from, No rain to straight summer weather without spring. I'm just hoping that we don't have that
0: wonderful uh, (laughs) other season in summer where the smoke from all the wildfires just comes in.
1: Oh I, see, I so thought you were going to refer to like the one or two days that it, it teases with 100 degrees. So Oh, that no, was the yeah, smoke. That summer. that's a rough. That's a rough go too.
0: Listeners for for context and then we'll stop talking about our local weather. Uh for context <laughs> last summer it was uh, it hit 110 degrees and it was just the worst. I golfed in that because weather. everyone's like you don't need Air conditioning in Washington State—it's West only hot Western Washington, That's true. Eastern Washington. You guys have it figured out. Yeah. Need Any to...
1: anybody east of the Cascade Mountains? I need to move to Wenatchee and get some
0: of that sweet AC in my house. Just commute. You'll just commute. <laughs> just commute. Anyway, all right. That we're, we're done now. Let's talk about Joshua. So, uh, this week we are reading Joshua's uh, Joshua chapter six through eighteen, and we're gonna kind of we're gonna go through most of the uh, most of the conquest. So this is gonna be it's gonna be a good time. This is Evan's favorite part. Yeah. Oh yeah. And you'll remember, listeners, I said last week. That these, these are some of the easiest books in the Bible to read because there's very little, you know, kind of dry spots. We are gonna hit a dry spot. But because <laughs> uh, we're gonna we are gonna be You're talking about we no, are gonna be talking about the borders of ancient Israel. That's later. Buckle Alright, so buckle up, buckaroos. Uh alrighty. So the buildup is over, and the armies of Israel are gonna go in and start taking some cities of Canaan. So first up is Jericho, which is probably the most, I don't I don't even probably, this is for sure the most famous city that Joshua captures. Um, I mean, yeah, in in the book, at least the most famous story. Um, So let's go ahead and start on that. It says this. And this is picking up right after Joshua has his uh, conversation with the commander of the armies of the Lord, if you'll remember from last week. So this week, chapter six, verse one. Now, Joshua, Joshua was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in, which, you know, before you start an attack, that's a good, good, solid strat. Uh, and the Lord said to Joshua, see, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and its mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city and all the men of war going around the city once. Thus you shall do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people will shout with a great shout and the wall of the city will fall down flat and the people shall go up everyone straight before him. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, take the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, go forward, march around the city and let the armed men pass before the Ark of the Lord. All right. So Jericho, they're sealed up. They're ready for an attack. They're like, listen, we got walls. We got really nice walls. And Joshua was like, hey, listen, we got, you know, the Lord. So <laughs> that's kind of, that's kind of how it goes. Uh, we all kind of know the story. They march around it on the seventh day. They march around seven times. They blow the trumpets and the walls come tumbling down, which was a song I used to sing in, uh, you know, back in children's church. And you still sing it today. All of the wall, I do, all of the walls came tumbling down, of course, except for the one section where Rahab's house was that stays standing and Rahab is able to live. Uh, so a couple things for clarity. Uh First, this is clearly Yahweh's victory. Mm -hmm. And you'll see this as a theme all throughout, especially in Judges (laughs) as well, but in Joshua. Uh... There, there is no way to read Jericho, the story of Jericho as a tactical victory of Joshua and his armies. That's like it's, true. it's not like Joshua was like, and then I saw a weakness in the walls that if we just pounded our feet really hard, they would fall down. Like, no, this is complete. this is a miracle. Uh, second, Jericho is kind of set up as a sacrifice city of sorts. So you remember, I can't remember when we talked about it was a few weeks ago, how the sacrificial system was built upon the idea that you're giving your first and your best to God. Uh, in a way, the Israelites are kind of giving Jericho to the Lord. They're not allowed to plunder it at all, which is not the case later. Later on in different cities, they are allowed to... They're, they sacrifice certain things, but they are allowed to plunder a lot of it. In Jericho, it's pretty much across the board. Hey, none of it. Um, and so most listen, we'll get back to that here in a little bit, uh, but <laughs> dun, dun, most dun. of the people are okay with that. Uh, and, and instead, all of the precious metals of Jericho would actually be put into the Lord's uh, treasury is what's called Yahweh's treasury. And then a third thing, uh, I was totally wrong last week. So correction, I know. I looked, I looked the fool, and I'm sure when I said it, many listeners were saying, "Evan, you fool." Why did you say that? Uh, Last week I said we weren't explicitly told that Rahab joined Israel. We can just kind of infer it from the fact that she's in all the genealogies. Uh, That's not true. So in, in verse 25, it says, but Rahab, the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers of whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. So... There you don't, go. Don't worry, everybody. I'm I'm literally shaking my head I know. at them right now so as we talk. So here's the embarrassing, because I'm realizing this as I'm reading it in the moment too. Here's the really embarrassing thing about that verse. It actually has taken two things that I said and kind of thrown them to the wolves. Because the <laughs> second thing I said was, uh, basically I said, like, you know, it, Joshua was probably written like right after the event's. Well, this is pretty much for sure because if Rahab is still alive, then we have a pretty decent handle on window of time. Yeah, so <laughs> probably within. If, let's let's give Rahab a solid, you know, seventy years because she's she's a lady. They live longer, um, so we have a probably about if the yeah if the conquest of Canaan took about six years, and let's say she's about twenty five. So we've got about like a forty year window of when this could have been written. So. Ah, listeners. I don't know why. I don't know why you listen to me. You should go find, <laughs> go find a better podcast. Just kidding. Please stay. Okay. Please, so then, please, please, please don't go. Please don't go. Uh, the next city that we get in chapters seven through eight is Ai, uh, which is just one of the more fun spellings of a city. And we're introduced to Aiken. Oh, Aiken, come on. So Joshua, again, we'll notice that he has, he has a, he has a strat that he goes to a lot. He sends out some spies and he wants to go. He wants to spy out the land. And they come back and they're saying, "Listen, AI, we've been there. Honestly, Joshua, piece of cake. Don't don't even send all of your men. I, I didn't write down the exact number, but I think they send about three thousand men to go take the city. Which remember that the the armies of Israel are are massive, so yeah. it's a very small percentage." Um, and then something crazy happens. They go and then they're held at the city walls and they're routed from the battlefield. They destroyed. Oh, they just get completely wrecked by the AI. And the spies are like, hold the phone. What is happening right now? And Joshua's like, hold the phone. What is happening right now? Uh, the people are dismayed, obviously. I mean, it's kind of, it's, and it's a huge bummer when you take like, like Jericho is this jewel, mm-hmm. massive walls. Like it's an incredible victory. God crashes the walls. They route the yeah. city and then they go take little AI or they don't take They go try to. Oh, man. What a bummer. Uh, So he prays and then God answers him and he tells him or tells Joshua that someone broke his commandment not to plunder Jericho. Classic Achan. Oh, Achan. Well, him and his family are stoned, so it's, <laughs> they, it's they don't they're well, not escalated quickly. Yeah, they're not they're not messing around. So Achan, he takes some of the plunder from Jericho for himself, which again it was commanded explicitly. This is all going to go into yeah. the Lord's treasury, not into anyone's pocket. Uh, and so this is a bummer. And he's executed. Him and his family are executed for this. Uh, it kind of reminds me a little bit of, obviously not to the same degree, but of the uh, the, the Korah rebellion that mm-hmm. we see in Numbers, where it's just kind of like, or swallows them up. Yeah. I mean, the earth doesn't open up and close again here, but you know, still it happens. Yeah. All right. After this, Joshua plans an ambush against AI, which succeeds. And then like Jericho, the city is burned down and completely destroyed. And it's kind of this whole thing of like, you know, no one will ever know it was here. Although I think we do know where Jericho was, but I don't know about AI. I should have looked that up. Well, anyway. It's got to be somewhere close, right? Yeah, that's true. So within <laughs> within walking distance, uh, the next city in chapter nine is Gibeon, where okay, so this story is really interesting. Yeah, right. Uh, so the Gibeonites trick the Israelites into sparing them, and here's and here's the deal. I I personally I don't super blame the Gibeonites, because if you're if you're watching along, this massive group of people is just coming out of the desert already. That's kind of spooky, but mm-hmm. whatevs. And then they just take Jericho and AI. And the, the, there's two big, well, at least one really large, powerful yeah. city. By all accounts, it's not even close. Like it's not this months long siege that finally breaks. No, they're just kind of- It's a week. Yep. They're going through and they're just tearing through the land. It's so like, hey, you know- Maybe we should try and make peace <laughs> with these guys. Maybe we shouldn't fight. Jump on the bandwagon. Oh, man.
1: Uh, and so... You could say it's Kevin Durant leaving the Oklahoma City Thunder to join the Golden State Warriors ooh. because they couldn't beat the Warriors, the you Juggernauts. So get anyways. wrecked, Kevin Durant. I figured we'd go like a different analogy versus Lord of the Rings just for the fun of it. So, uh, But the other side of it, too, I think even with Jericho is... Uh, and, I, and I probably should have said this a couple of moments ago, but uh, Jericho was was viewed as the one of the most premier city defenses in the region, like and because like their walls were massive. And, and the simple fact that this this small little group of people called Israel came in and were able to destroy them and take them and sack them and and in essence, wipe them off the face of the earth, so to speak. Um, that that was that, that was indicate like that was a big indicator. That's no small thing. No, and so it's so it's you carry this reputation of it's preceding them, and so all of the regions now aware of this because Jericho got taken, mm-hmm. and Jericho was not just like this this massive city with a lot of wealth, but it was it was also one of the strongest entry points. It was the most well defensed and everything like that. So so th- this is why the Gibeonites are like, well, wait a minute, <laughs> we're not Jericho, um, and they've taken two now. Uh, we, we need to revisit this. So I agree with you. I, I I mean, I'm not, I wouldn't, I don't fault the Gibeonites at all whatsoever. I just fault Joshua in this story. So
0: yeah. And we'll,
1: we'll talk about why we fault Joshua here in a sec.
0: Yeah. Just crazy. But so the Gibeonites come and they're like, Hey, Hey guys, Hey Israelites, how's it going? Uh, we're from far away, uh, you know, super far away. You've probably never heard of us before. Um, let's make peace. Let's make a covenant between us. You know, let's let's not attack each other. We promise not to attack you. You promise not to attack us. Um, you know, it's just, it'll be good to have like one of these faraway nations to have an alliance with them. And then Joshua and everyone's like, yeah, soups. that's Sounds awesome. Great.
1: Let's do it. And so they make an alliance. But the way that they did it though, too, is so brilliant with like, let me take old stuff. I mean, they were within a days, two days, whatever walk. Uh, I, think, I don't remember how close they were. But they took like old worn down, like they got moldy bread, they've got worn out sandals, like, and they have like, they have the worn out items and they load themselves up with it. So it looks like they've journeyed from a long distance. And and they say, because we've heard of your God, like yep. it's, it's appealing to their, to their, uh, not just their, the God that they worship, but also to their own egos. So that's the crazy thing. They were so brilliant with how they they manipulated. Yeah, they're God's people. They're being tricksy. Oh, tricksters, um, tri-
0: tricksters Jacob's, if you will. That's what the <laughs> yep, translates to, yep. by the way. Uh, and so, anyways, Joshua finds out later that they're actually Canaanites. So they're not. <laughs> they're not from super far away. They're like one of don't. the cities that's yeah, do that is supposed to be conquered. Um, and we're told explicitly that because he did not seek the Lord, so Joshua doesn't like you know they don't. Arrive, and then Joshua was like, "Well, let me pray on this." No, he just like he just yeah, goes seems for good him. to me. Yeah, and you know, Joshua, like Moses, not perfect. That's not a fair. Yeah. Um, that's not a fair standard to hold him to. But yeah, he really he kind of uh he messes up on
1: this one. He, miss, he misses it pretty hard on this one. <laughs>
0: yep, and so uh, they. And they made a covenant, like they're not going to break it. So yep. now they've already decided, okay, well, we're not going to, we're not going to attack Gibeon. And so they joined, they actually join with Israel. They become part of Israel. And they're Israel
1: slaves and things like that. Exactly. Right? So, but.
0: so then this is where they they are, Joshua curses them to essentially be servants and low level workers. So they're never going to rise to the, um, like the heights of Israeli society mm-hmm. is kind of the point, but they, they join with them. Uh, And then in chapter 10, I mean, I I guess, I don't know if I'd consider this to be like a bad thing that comes out of it, maybe a little bit, but anyways, the king of Jerusalem, hey, that's going to-
1: Hey, that's a familiar (laughs) That's going to come up later.
0: Uh, The king of Jerusalem, at this time, not a part of Israel, that is one of the cities, uh, launches an attack uh, on Gibeon. So he hears about the Gibeonites and he's like, wow, guys, really not cool. (laughs) And so uh, Israel comes to their defense because again- you know, it's, uh, it's the promise they made. It's the covenant that they made with them. And we get this miracle. Uh, and this is Joshua chapter 10, starting in verse six. It says, and the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp of Gilgal saying, do not relax your hand from your servants. Hey, hey, you know, no. f- flex that hand. <laughs> uh, come up to us quickly and save us and help us for the king of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal and he and all the people of war with him and, th- and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them down with a great blow at Gibeon and chased them by the way of the ascent to Beth Hornon and struck them as far as Azka and Makeda. And then they fled before Israel while they were going down the ascent of Beth Horon. The Lord... Uh, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as... as Boy, just a... Wah, wah, Also, yeah, that's one of those things. It's like, it's bad enough that you're just getting completely routed, but then and you're, you're just, running oh, rocks you're retreating. Rocks are falling from the sky. Uh There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with a sword. So, I mean, just... Some real
1: rotten. I won't say rotten luck because it's not luck; it's it's God yeah. <laughs> inter-
0: well, interfering. But
1: and the crazy thing too is like I mean, go back to go back to their their lack of engagement or, or even inquiring of the Lord. God's still provided for them in the midst of their misstep, if you will. And so I think that that's another layer to like the, the, the cool factor. And again, it's it's I mean, even the point that more died from the hailstones or then were killed by the Israelites. Again, it's God's victory. Yep. It's God's provision and God's favor um, to to protect and preserve his people. And so I think that that's just another layer to it too.
0: Well, I think you could, I mean, you could say that this is one of the great failures of not this battle, but sorry, the um, not seeking the Lord about the Gibeon. Gibeon. Uh, that's one of the great failures of this generation, which you know, as far as great failures go, it's not worshiping a golden calf right after seeing the Red Sea. And it's also not being brought to the precipice of the Promised Land and being like, ah, I don't know. I don't we can't take it. So. Listen,
1: man, I don't know why you throw shade about the golden calf. It just popped out of it the just, fire, okay?
0: I have no idea. <laughs> Moses, it just it just appeared. Oh, oh man, Aaron. Yep. Classic old Aaron, high priest Aaron. Yeah. Not this Aaron. Oh man. Yeah. This Aaron, he did not, he hasn't tried to make me worship a golden calf yet. Not yet. So, But, I, but
1: I'm collecting, no, I'm just kidding. I'm oh, not collecting man. anything. Bad joke.
0: All right. And then it says, at that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, sun stands stand still at Gibeon and moon in the valley of of, oh man, Igelon. I should have looked up how to pronounce that one. And the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jashar? Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. It's probably. Yes. I, it, yeah. I read it every now and then. Yeah. I love the book of Joshua. all about, all about that. Uh, the sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of man for the Lord fought for Israel. So Joshua returned and all of Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. So miracle sun and moon stay in place the day. Essentially it's giving them more day, time. Yeah. yeah. It's pretty cool. Um, I do also, we were being kind of like, you know, sarcastic there. Um, I love the book of Jashar and there's a bunch of references like, so I, again, we don't actually have the book I've of never Jishar. read it, yeah, just saying, it's, just
1: total transparency.
0: No, no, I haven't either. I'm saying it, just, it doesn't exist. It's lost time. Um, but I love these little nuggets in scripture where we see that this is clearly not, it's not myth-making because it's referencing like, hey, you, we have this record in mm-hmm. Kings, We I believe it's Kings or Chronicles. Um, but it's referenced all the times like in, if you want more information on this, it's written in the, the annals of the Kings of Judah and Israel. And it's like, Oh, I wish we had those, but I mean, cool, I guess. So it, it, it kind of, it, 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 it helps the biblical world feel as real as it actually was. Yeah. This isn't myth. This is actually, this is one chronicle that in God's providence has survived until the modern day,
1: but it's not the yeah. only
0: chronicle of things that happened.
1: So, yeah, and the book of Jashar is that nugget, just for clarity. You yep. said you love the book of Jashar. I was like, I've never read it. Yeah, I'm just know, like, I, I haven't either. I was like, why'd you say you love the book? Sorry, then? I love but the it. It's nugget. a nugget, the nugget yep. uh, referencing the book of Jashar. So. Exactly. Um,
0: After this story, we kind of get a montage of conquest. So if this is an action movie, like these three things are their individual movie scenes. And then, you know, like some 80s rock ballad starts playing. And then we see Israel kind of going from city to city and conquering. Uh, We are told of the conquest of Southern Canaan, which includes Makeda, Libna, Lachish, Eglon, Hebron, and Debir. And then in chapter 11, some of the kings in Northern Canaan unite to try and take on the Israelites. So they're like, hey, you know, This whole southern region is going down. We better unite and try and take them on. Uh, As you can imagine, this doesn't go particularly well. All these armies are defeated and with another miracle from Yahweh. uh, After this, northern Canaan is subdued. So chapter 12. So chapter 11 is kind of the end of at least Joshua's major conquests of the area. Uh, Chapter 12 is just like a nice recap of all the kings defeated by Israel, both Moses and Joshua. So it's kind of... It's a. It's definitely a pausing point. The, mm-hmm. the whole land hasn't been taken because we'll see all throughout the period of Judges. Really, it's not until like David, I believe, that the actual fullness of Israel as promised is taken hold of. I could be wrong on that, but
1: it, it takes a very long time. Um, yeah, that's a good question. That's a good thought. I'm not sure... Um, I'm just trying to think because David was still in conquest. David was, was still. Because the Philistines were still around. Yeah. And so I, I almost wonder if it's, it's like the era of Solomon. That's why we see Solomon was leading in such an era of peace is because the land would finally be conquered. But that's yeah. a good, that's a good, that's a good curious thought, I guess. Yeah.
0: It's generations from now yeah. is when it will actually fully
1: be in control of Israel and then not for long. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I mean, even to, to consider this for a second, like if you're conquesting it, that's all you do. Like that's just a long drawn, like that's it's not realistic for one king or one leader to conquer an entire region. Sure. Because there's just so much to it. I mean, I mean tell that these, to Alexander the Great. These are not like, but even Alexander the Great, his fell. Yeah. He, I mean, he, he ended, um, he was a flash in the pan, but he was a significant flash in the pan. But re- reality is, is his, yeah. his, his reign didn't last. After he died, it split fast. Yeah. So there, there's just something to be said about understanding the long, the the the, the duration that it would take. To accomplish, and we're reading them in, in quick, succinct chapters, so it does at times feel kind of quick. And and I would say there was kind of a quick conquering to exist, but there was also a, a need to pause and a need to yeah. establish and need to, because you can't just, you stretch yourself way too thin. That's what I'm trying to say. If right. you go from from Jericho all the way through the region, you're not able to establish your people and begin to establish the the population so to speak so there is a significant piece of that too but mm-hmm. but there is there is enough land
0: that has been taken to actually give here's all the tribes yep. here's all the land that you have and then they kind of divide they divide up the regions mm-hmm. and and every tribe is allowed to essentially go they, home they get their space yeah and then there's going to be constant wars which we're going to talk a lot about in the next book in the old testament reading through which is judges which, which is coming next week yep next week oh judges Anyway, all right, Back so, to Joshua. So, yeah, so that's chapter 12. It basically goes from the first victories of Moses all the way through the final victories of Joshua. Uh, chapters 13 through 18 are going to deal with what needs to be done with the remainder of the land as well as the land that has been taken. So there's this tension. We had talked about this already, but there's a tension for many generations to complete and hold the land that God would have for them. Uh, and for these chapters, I would really. Really recommend read, reading with a map of ancient Israel. Uh, it's a really you, good idea. Yeah, if you have a study Bible, there's probably one right next to it. If you don't, just look up kind of like Israel in the era of the Judges or in the era of Joshua. Um, you but, can
1: also go to like BibleGateway.com. Oh, that's uh, true. Yeah. Even Blue Letter Bible, I think, would be a good website to to, to refer to as you're reading through it, just to see, um, because it's going to help you. Um, it's just going to help you visualize it too as you're reading through it. So
0: yeah, exactly. So it's going to help you put a place to the name instead yep. of just reading a list of names. You're actually imagining, Oh, okay. So this is where all this is happening at. Yep. Uh, so anyways, that's kind of starting up and then we get, it leads off with this nice section here. It says, now Joshua was old and advanced in years. And the Lord said to him, you are old and advanced in years. <laughs> well, <laughs> Thank you, John. Thanks Thank you, God. Thanks God. <laughs> like I'm aware. Uh, and there remains yet very much land to possess. This is the land that yet remains all the regions of the Philistines, which I mean, you know, Philistines are pretty famous at enemies of Israel. They'll be around for a while. Uh, and all those of the Gesherites. From the Shehor, which is east of Egypt, northward to the ba- boundary of Ekron, it is counted as Canaanite. There are five rulers of the Philistines, those of Gaza, Ashad, Ashkenoth, or Ashkelon, sorry, Gath, and Ekron, and those of the Avim. In the south... All the lands of the Canaanites and the Mariah that belong to the Sidonians, to, A- to Aphek, and to the boundaries of the Amorites, and the land of the Gebelites, and all of Lebanon towards the sunrise, from G- Balgad below Mount Hermon to Libo Hamath, all the in- in- inhabitants of the hill country from Lebanon, oh my goodness, from me <laughs> to Maim, uh, even with all the Sidonians, I myself will drive them out before the people of Israel only Allot the land to Israel for an inheritance as I have commanded you. Now, therefore, divide this land as an inheritance to the nine tribes and to the half tribe of Manasseh. And you may be wondering, wait, there's 10 tribes there. Why aren't there 12? Because remember, it was Reuben and Gad who held land on the east side of the Jordan. And so they already have their land. So it's the other 10 tribes now they're going to get their land. Or no, it's Reuben and East Manasseh. Is that what? Yeah. Reuben and... Yeah. Oh, shoot. Sorry, listeners. I don't know.
1: I look the fool... Again, no, because you didn't say something as if it was accurate. You admitted that there might not be accuracy, so you don't look like a fool. That's thanks. Just man. like you don't know the answer,
0: I I, <laughs> I needed to hear that today. Thank you. Uh, and then here's the deal: we're, the rest of these of the section that we're going to be reading through this week is essentially the dividing lines where the regions are. And so here's what I would say. Um, this is, very, this is not very interesting to us today because it's literally <laughs> the weeds of these cities belong yep. to these tribes. Here's the boundary lines. Here's where it goes. Um, but imagine for a moment, put yourself into the life of being a, not a first century Jew. You would be an, an ancient Jew who had just come into the promised land. You and your tribe are taking hold of this land. And even if you, let's say this is written a hundred years before you're actually reading it, it would be incredibly interesting to you to see where the dividing lines of that God promised to your tribe, to your people Mm -hmm. are. Um, For them, these wouldn't be ancient places that we have no idea where they are. These would be cities that they're very familiar with, landmarks that they're very familiar with. And so, and and I I think so much of, so much of reading the Bible is striving to try and put ourselves into the lives of the people that we're reading about. So I think this this section here is a very good exercise in trying to do that. Imagine yeah. as you're reading that you're actually reading about the land that you have yeah. and
1: how important that would be to you. Well, and it shows the fulfillment of God's provision. Like God promised you're gonna go into this land and you're gonna inherit good land. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in that, even with the boundaries, you then get to see, because your your heritage, your your tribe, your family lines, like those are all very important parts of your identity as God's people. Um, and so to see where, how God has provided for your people, your ancestors, your family um, is really significant. And so that's, as you're reading through it, don't just skip over it because we say it's not relevant to us today, but it is, there is this layer of understanding the fulfillment of God's promise is, is now tangible to these people, uh, to God's people. It's tangible. So yeah. yeah, make sure to do that.
0: There's a section in, there's a quote in poetic diction where Owen Barfield talks about how it's a, it's a book I read like a few months ago. It's really good. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he talks about how like when he read, he was reading a poem written in pidgin English about, um, it was a tribe in one of the Polynesian islands who had seen a steamship for the first time, I believe is what the poem's about. And so they're writing about like putting it into their words and like describing what like a big steamship would look like. Um, and he's saying like, for a moment as you read it, it's like you all of a sudden shed Western civilization and now you're seeing this great ship through the eyes of a completely different culture that you've never actually interacted with before. And I would say that in, in the the best parts of scripture, at best is the wrong word, but through parts of scripture, that's what we can do is we can, as, as much as possible, we can kind of shed away our modern uh, Western civilization glasses, and we can try and look at the world the way that they would have looked at it mm-hmm. as well. So, uh, but... We're not just talking about Joshua today, listeners. We're also talking about Second Corinthians. But before Aaron dives into that, I do wanna say like, hey, you know, if you haven't had a chance to leave us a review yet, you could do that. That'd be super swell. Yeah. It would be, you know, it would just mean that we're friends, listeners. If you left us a five-star review, it would be swell. And if you leave a written review, we'll actually read it on the podcast, live on the air, because that's the kind of guys that we are. So we would really appreciate, it just helps to grow this community of people reading the Bible together. Yeah.
1: And I will say this, we have seen reviews coming over the last couple of weeks, five-star reviews. We thank you so much for that. Um, and would love for you to continue to do that. I do know we had a question about how uh, I think someone mentioned how do they, they don't know where they really have how, how to leave a review on Apple podcasts. Um, you scroll to the bottom, there's a spot where it said rate, uh, five stars, you can be able to fill it out there. And if you want to do a written review, that's where you can do it too. So Spotify, you still just do a rating, but, uh, we appreciate that. And there has been, I want to acknowledge some of you have been leading reviews and so, or five-star ratings and things like that. So thank you for that. Um, As Evan said, we are continuing in 2 Corinthians. Uh, We'll wrap up the book next week. uh, And just a little teaser, we're actually going to be introducing two new books and wrapping up two books next week. So it's going to be kind of a content-packed week. Um, And so we're just going to continue just chapters 4 through 10 of 2 Corinthians. And just a a reminder, this letter is really unique uh, from Paul because it's actually him spending a very big chunk of time, about half the letter, uh, actually a little more than half the letter, Uh, defending his legitimacy as an apostle sent by Christ. He's affirming his authority. He's affirming his validity uh, as an apostle. And because he's been, he's speaking to an audience who have been swayed by quote unquote super apostles, in essence, individuals who come with flair and pomp and, and all of these like flashy ways of presenting the gospel, all these high letters of recommendation. And they say, yeah, what about that Paul guy? That Paul guy, he doesn't have, you know, any recommendations. He doesn't come with any kind of flashiness. He doesn't come with any... There's nothing really potent to his teaching. It's just teaching. And so... Um, so the Corinthian context and this is just a rehash, they've been they've been swayed away from Paul's teaching and therefore swayed away from the gospel. Uh, and so so Paul is his, his licking his wounds a bit. he's offering a very strong rebuke. Um, he he actually even sent a very stern uh, conver- conversation through Titus um, to to speak very sternly to them, to give them grief is what he says. Um, and so we see this letter being written to the Corinthians for a second time. Uh, alluding to a third arrival uh, with to be with the Corinthian church, um, But we see his rebuttal, his response, and his reestablishing of his authority. Uh, and we get to rejoice in some of the repentance of the the early uh, believers in Corinth. And so um, we're gonna see, as I mentioned last week, chapters, uh, the chapters we're reading, the first bulk of it, chapters 4 through 7, verse 16, uh, really is all of 7. We're going to see him kind of establishing his def- and continuing his defense that we picked up on last week. Uh, and so I just will kind of quickly go through some of these things. I've got a couple things I want to read, um, but a lot of this will be familiar for us. I, I love the way Paul writes, even though sometimes it can get really confusing. The one I'll, encouragement I'll give you as you read through Paul, and I think I've done this before, is read it slowly. Don't just kind of read it. I, I have mm-hmm. a tendency to be a fast reader and then get lost in his switchbacks. Uh, but read a little slower, uh, intentionally to really understand what he's saying. Uh, in chapter four, uh, verses one through six, um, we see Paul is, is motivated by the gospel. He's not motivated by human approval. He's not motivated by uh, any materialism or any money. That's not his motivation. His motivation is the gospel. Uh, and this starts off our reading this week. And so I'm gonna read the first six verses here. Uh, It says, therefore, since we have this ministry, because we were shown mercy, we do not give up the mercy he's referring to is the mercy of Christ, the death and resurrection and the drawing back to to the family of God. The belonging is how we use it here at the Grove. Um, But is this belonging? Because we've been shown mercy to belong, we don't give up. It It says, instead, we have renounced secret and shameful things, not acting deceitfully or distorting the word of God. But commending ourselves before God to everyone's conscience by an open display of truth, and so in essence, he's just very simply talking about his his motivation is the gospel. Period. We renounce he's we renounced things. We renounce tampering or manipulating the word uh, because our motivation is God and God alone. It's not money, possessions, or things like that. Which again is a rebuttal to what he's been what all these other super apostles are revealing. He says this in verse three. But if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those, excuse me, who are perishing. In their case, the God of this age, referring to Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we are not proclaiming ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said that all light shine out of darkness, has shown into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory uh, in, in the face of God's glory in the face of Jesus. Christ. So in essence, Paul is taking a moment to start us off this week to remind us the motivation for his ministry is not in any approval, in any recognition, in any monetary value. It's in Christ and Christ alone because Christ has shown him mercy. Therefore, he wants to continue to operate in that same mercy, which I think is a very strong challenge for us as Christians today, that our motivation should be anchored and re-anchored to Jesus on a regular basis. Um, He continues on, in chapter four, in seven to eighteen, talking about the title in the in your script, your Bible is probably going to say something like the treasure of jars of clay, uh, which is a really, I remember as a kid growing up, really familiar passage and phrase. Um, but, but in a song, in a song, it's is it a song or is it? Or is it's it a band. band. Jars of Clay is? is a band. Ah. Um, nice effort but I look the fool i'll give again. it a, i'll give it a c i'll give it average thanks man it's easy to get confused so uh, but paul paul is in essence saying very simply we, he does not losing heart because the same power that raised christ from the dead is what empowers him to endure the adversity and hardship he's receiving. He talks about the treasure in jars of clay is the idea of it's temporary, but the treasure that he's holding to is eternal. Uh, And it's this power that he refers to uh, and refers to the resurrection. Uh, We'll see him shift into chapter five, this idea of a heavenly dwelling, uh, where he even confesses he longs to be home with the Lord. But when he's away, while he's away from the Lord, in other words, while he's present on earth, uh, he doesn't lose heart because his confidence is in the future resurrection uh, and in the reality of judgment to come. That is what keeps him faithful in the present as he pursues his goal of pleasing Christ. Again, his motivation is Christ centric, um, and he has not just this confidence in eternity, in the eternal dwelling. And the future resurrection that's coming and, but also knowing that he's going to be free and clear of the judgment that, that everyone's going to face because his goal is pleasing Christ. Well, it reminds me so much of that passage in Philippians too, where he talks about the idea of to
0: live as Christ and to die is gain. Yep. And that's so much of, that's so much of Paul's ministry, particularly when you get into his later years where he's kind of just saying like, you know, I'm ready to go yep. when it, when it's my time to go, I'm ready to go. But as long as I'm here. I'm going to continue the work of Christ. So as long as I live, I'm continuing on that gospel mission. But when I die, it's going to be even better.
1: Yeah. It's when going. he even says the reason, like if he had his way, he would go right and be with Christ. But he said, it's better for you that I stay and to continue on that gospel message. So uh, yeah, it's very true. And you see, you almost see just the, the parallel and the overlap of all of Paul's writing has a lot of the same. It's the same the same thoughts and themes, but at the end of the day, he also caters to to the audience too. But Paul again is is reminding my motivation's not you, my motivation's not your money, my motivation's not your approval, my motivation's Christ, which is why I'm standing. And even in the midst, remember, he went away and was waiting for Titus to come and encourage him because he was he was defeated in this moment. When he's writing this letter, he's he's heartbroken, he's like offended and wounded and hurt, and so he's. He's writing back to, to rebuttal and reestablish his, his authority. Chapter 5, 11, verses to 6, 2. Uh, this is a really beautifully deep passage where Paul's uh, writing about not just this ministry of reconciliation, but it really is providing a, a description of Paul's real motivation, the content and the call of this new quote unquote covenant ministry. In other words, you've got old covenant, new covenant, new covenant is Christ centric. Um, old covenant is the law and the way of sacrifices and the way of relig- religious leaders. Jesus came and abolished that, not abolished it. He fulfilled it. Right. I want to be clear. He fulfilled it. He did um, not come to abolish. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but he, he, he fulfilled it and then established a new covenant. And so, um, so Paul is doing this drawn out, communication, this deep writing uh, to describe uh, that revelation or that to reveal that motivation and content uh, of this call. Um, He continues in in verses chapter six, three through 13, uh, that this new covenant that he now is operating under with Christ supports the legitimacy for Paul's ministry. Um, In essence, for the Corinthians being reconciled to God, which is their motivation to be reconciled to God, it actually that that desire that reality confirms and affirms Paul's ministry, uh, and then also challenges their partnership as God's coworker to submit what He tells them, what Paul tells them, uh, and so Paul is beginning to yield and appeal to the tension of his call and and God's new covenant ministry, if calling out the Corinthians saying, listen, if you are in the new covenant, if you are part of God's uh, family to do what he has called us to do in the message and hope of Jesus, then you have to listen to what I'm telling you. You have to remember the gospel I preach to you. Uh, as so this new covenant support for my legitimate, my legitimacy in ministry. Uh, he continues on that call, uh, for the disciples, um, the early disciples, the Corinthian believers to repent, to have an expression of repentance. Um, it's, uh, it's almost like Paul's bringing this argument to a culmination. Um, and it's the second time he's providing clear application as to what it means to open their hearts more. And so we're going to see that in chapter six, verse four through seven, uh, that Paul is saying, listen, the call is secure. The call is real. What God Christ has done and how he has established me. Y- y- there's a repentance needed. He's offering a very graciously strong rebuke to those believers saying, you have rejected me. You've been swayed away from the truth of the gospel. It's time to come back. And, but coming back to the gospel also affirms my call, um, And then we see this in verse 2, verses 16. You see Paul's joy over the repentant Corinthians. Um, This is where he gets a report from Titus that the the believers, the church, have been repentant for the most part. Um, And he expresses joy uh, that he has and the desire for continued joy for those who repent and turn back uh, to his authority in the gospel, Uh, which means for Paul, the grief that he gave them was worth it. Like my rebuke yep. to you was worth it because you've repented and not because he cares about his own ego. It's the gospel he cares about. Remember his motivation earlier in this section, it's the gospel. And so he has rejoiced or he has rejoined. He has joy uh, of their repentance. <laughs> and he rejoices again and again and again, I say rejoice. Um, and so that kind of is kind of to the point where we begin to see this shift. And when we jump into chapter eight, we're going to see a shift. It's not going to be his rebuttal and his uh, argument for legitimacy. He's going to start, uh, he starts two appeals uh, for the rest of the reading this week. He starts an appeal to the repentant church uh, to continue regard, uh, to continue going and collecting money that's meant to be collected for the suffering Jews or suffering believers in Jerusalem. Uh, And so he's going to appeal to the repentant church. Hey, you've repented. Now continue the good work that you did uh and then he's going to appeal to the to the rebellious minority in other words the the super apostles who have come against him he's going to then appeal to them directly uh so chapter 8 uh 1 through 9:15 uh we see Paul uh address the repentant church he talks about he tells them hey co- go back to collecting again collect money pool your money because your generosity will manifest God's grace in the lives of those suffering believers in Jerusalem and then he makes this simple statement that the Macedonians are a great example to, of how to be generous, and for clarity, Corinth, remember, was the third most important city in in the in the Roman Empire, and also very rich. The Macedonian people were not rich. Yep. they were actually pretty significantly poor, especially in comparison to Corinth. And Paul is saying, "Hey, listen, now that you've repented and you've reaffirmed what I've already told you about the gospel, and you now are understanding that I am who I say I am as as God's apostle." Go back to making a collection, so we can send it to Jerusalem for the believers that are suffering.
0: Well, I feel like you also get this thing with the Macedonian church, where you know they're doing a good job because Paul never has to write a letter to them. <laughs> like so many of the epistles so are, like, much are like, "Hey guys, come on, bring it in." Whereas, like Mass, well, one day we'll be in heaven and we'll meet the Macedonian church, and we're going to be like, "Oh, those guys are awesome." They're oh, great. that makes sense. They're
1: great. <laughs> well, and I think I mean it's e- even it's even really important to I mean that's where Paul is. Like that's what he, he flee, he leaves Ephesus. He leaves the area of Corinth and goes to Macedonia because he can't find Titus and he needs to be encouraged. He wants to be surrounded and he needs to lick his wounds. So he's riding from a place of, of hurt and wounds, but he's also in Macedonia among people where Titus meets him, gives a great report of their repentance, but also he's surrounded by people that get it. (laughs) They're not questioning or being swayed away from the gospel so he makes this it's not a jab but it's a very strong comparison hey this community of people this church this body of believers our brothers and sisters are showing you how to be generous why can't you be more like your sister church (laughs) oh geez um and so we see that in the first section here god or paul calls them to to again collect um and he refers to it as a grace of god like your generosity is going to help manifest the grace of god in the lives of the those suffering in jerusalem um, he then takes a moment to commend Titus and the brothers. Uh, we have an anonymous brother here. Uh, there's not a lot of clarity on who it is, but there's some speculation. I know I hit that last week in the podcast, uh, so I'm going to make you go back and listen to it if you want to know that little side note. Ooh. Uh, but he provides the encouragement, the affirmation for Titus and the brothers to uh, to collect and be and have the authority to to collect and and receive the money so they can carry it on. And then he has this little this little section where he just reminds them of generosity, joy, and the glory of God. And in essence, it's just saying that the generosity that they give will maximize their joy and will help fellow believers and bring honor and praise to God. Um, he again appeals to them, not from a selfish place, but a, a place of high understanding that of their role and their purpose in helping to encourage and support the body at large, not just their Corinthian body of believers. Uh, so he wraps up that in that appeal. It is interesting to note that his appeal to the Corinthian church in this letter is specifically for them to continue doing what they were once doing before they got swayed away, making a uh, collect money and resources and support your brothers and sisters who are suffering uh, and do it because it's going to create joy. It's going to maximize your joy and it's going to honor and provide help and support. And then Paul shifts In chapter 10, we actually see this carried out through chapter 13. So as we get into the end of the book next week, uh, you see Paul kind of once more shift very, very subtly, but very, very strategically uh, to begin to appeal to the rebellious minority. I love the fact here, because if you remember, even in first Corinthians, Paul's father like heart for these people, he cares deeply about them. And he's not writing these, this minority who have helped sway and manipulate the Corinthian believers, his heart is that all might come to the saving knowledge of Christ, that they would all live according to the gospel. He doesn't give up on them. He doesn't just write them off and say, well, you guys are screwed. He said he, he then shifts the conversation for the remainder of his letter to these specific people. Uh, and he, he desires to draw them once more to the gospel. Um, Cause Paul does not look forward to judging them. <laughs> Paul does not look forward to, to, to coming and showing up again, which he's planning on doing. And then if, for those who are unrepentant, he's going to have to judge and he doesn't look forward to that. Uh, and so we see in chapter 10 here, uh, a, a defense, uh, a, a two-layer defense, one of his, his humility as an apostle, and then one of his authority. Uh, and so we're going to read this first section first, and then I'll jump into the last section. It says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 11. Now it says, I, now I, Paul, myself, appeal to you By the meekness and gentleness of Christ. He's comparing his approach to Jesus. I am, I who am humble among you in person, but bold towards you in absent. I beg you that when I'm present, I will not need to be bold with the confidence by which I plan to challenge certain people who think we are behaving according to the flesh. For although we live in the flesh, we do not wage war to the flesh. Since the weapons of our warfare are not of flesh, but are powerful through God, for the demolition of strongholds, we demolish arguments and every proud thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive. And I love that putting a verse like this, which I know I've even preached through at different times, putting it in context is really, really strategically and intentional to understand. Paul is appealing to them to draw their, their, their eyes to a higher clarity, to a higher understanding of the gospel, that we're not waging war against each other. He's calling them to remember that Christ in his humility and meekness, he himself is following suit and we need to fight together, not against each other. He says that we are ready to punish any disobedience in verse six. Once your obedience is complete, look at what is obvious. If anyone is confident that he belongs to Christ, let him remind himself of this. Just as he belongs to Christ, so do we. In other words, he's like, why are we quarreling against each other? If we are in Christ, we're of the same family. We're in the, we should be fighting in the same direction. It's like, I'm a Christian. Yeah. Yeah. Me too, guy. <laughs> Come on. And this is, I mean, this goes back to his appeal in chapter six of first Corinthians where it's why do you bring each other to, to, to the judge? Why do you bring each other to court and look at lawsuits for petty little things? Yeah. Like if we are, if we're higher ability to, cause of wisdom, higher ability, if we, if we are people who have wisdom from on high, Why can't we settle these disputes? You're taking each other to court, and so he's appealing for the unity of the of the brethren. He's appealing to the unity of faith. And these super apostles, these rebellious ones, think they know better, and but they say they're preaching the same gospel, or they're they're preaching the same line. If they are, if they're both in Christ, then he's saying, hey, we belong too. So stop fighting us. So then Paul says this, and this is this takes a lot for Paul to say this. He doesn't like boasting. He he thinks it's foolish. He says, for if I boast a little too much about our authority, which the Lord gave me for building you up and not tearing you down, I will not be put to shame. I don't want to seem as though I, am trying to terrify you with my letters for it is said his letters are weighty. This is a statement he heard back. His letters are weighty and powerful, but his physical presence is weak and his public speaking amounts to nothing. Wow. Did you get owned, Paul? And so Paul's like, listen, I'm coming at you with humility and meekness and love and grace. I don't want to be strong-handed. I don't want to come at you with weight but you're not hearing me. So let me come at you with weight. And, say, and he says this, let such a person consider this. What we are in our letters when we are absent, we will also be in our actions when we are present. In other words, when I come back, if you are unrepentant, I will show you. Like, I, will, I will show you the authority and the boldness that I have, that I write with. I'm getting real, uh, just wait until your father gets home vibes <laughs> Dude, totally, <right> <laughs> totally, Like I'm starting to, to, to kind of like squirm a bit. Sorry, mom. But that's what Paul is saying. I don't want to be this. I don't want to have to, to bring the hammer, but I will because it's, it's God's call and authority on my life to present the gospel and keep people accountable to it. Uh, and so he says from his humility, I don't want to, but I will. And and then he continues on and he shifts the argument towards these minority rebellious people. And he starts defending his authority. Uh, and and this is where now we pick up in chapter th- or chapter 10, verse 13 to 18. It says, we, however, will not boast beyond measure, but according to the measure of the area of ministry that God has assigned to us, which reaches even to you. And I love that because it shows Paul's heart, even to you when you are coming against me, when you are ridiculing and dashing and throwing me in in, in all sorts of shade at me, I'm still reaching out to you. He says, for we're not overextending ourselves as if we had not reached you since we have come to you with the gospel of Christ. We're not boasting beyond measure about other people's labors on the contrary we have the hope that you, as your faith increases our ministry of our area of ministry will be greatly enlarged so that we may preach the gospel to the regions beyond you without boasting about what has already been done in someone else's area of ministry so that the one who boasts boasts in the Lord for it is not one commending himself who is approved but that the lord the one that the lord commends and he just goes back to the simple truth of this is the authority that I've been given mm-hmm. that we have been given with the gospel of Christ and for you who are who are at odds with me it's time we, we we line up and be in alignment and support each other and, and further the gospel because it magnifies and multiplies the expanse of the reach which i think is so powerful powerful for us today in regards to churches across the world and across the country and across the city and across the street it's the gospel that is propelling us and we have to stay in alignment with the gospel
0: well it reminds me of one of my favorite lines um from the hymn how deep the father's love is, I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. And just kind of the whole idea of like, that is what our hope and our boast is
1: in. I love it. And that's even what Paul says when he appeals back, even we see it in Acts. When I was among you brothers, this is when he was first um, converted To Christianity, to to faith in Christ, and being with the disciples, his platform, his position, his argument was: I I didn't presume to know anything among you except Christ and Him crucified. And he submitted himself, which was really, which was really poignant. I mean, years ago when I remember reading this in in Acts, but he submitted himself to their leadership, their teaching, the disciples—that is, um, for for a a good solid length of time. I I wish I remembered how long it was. Uh, I want to say years because that's how long it took just to, to be, to develop, to understand what it really meant to live and walk with Jesus. Oh yeah. Um, I want to say it was like a decade. I don't, between, I don't remember between,
0: between his conversion at Damascus to when he was actually sent out.
1: Yeah. I don't remember. Oh. It might be, but I just, I know it was, and again, I want, I don't want to be a fool. Um <laughs> don't want to look the fool. <laughs> a, um, no, but I just remember like there's a significant amount of time where he has withheld Cause he's a brilliant guy. Like he's not some, some random guy off the street. Like he's a very well, intelligent, learned individual. I mean, he talks about if he could boast, if anybody could boast, he could boast in his, in his flesh and what he's accomplished. Um, so, but yeah, it is this picture of it's Christ and him crucified. And I love that. That's what he sticks to. Even in this portion where he's appealing to the, to those who have rebelled, those who have been swayed by rebellion, and he appeals to them on the basis of the gospel. This is what aligns us, anchors us and unites us. We should be moving forward together, not fighting against each other. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, that's before, all I got. Before, eh, it, was, it was beautiful. I love it. A little, a little gospel presentation, just what we needed. Um, <laughs> before we wrap it up today, though, we did have a question come in. that yes. so we wanted to talk about, we actually had a few come in, so we'll get to another one next week, yep. but... Uh, Keep them coming. This one says, in Deuteronomy 23.3... 20, it says, no Ammonite, Moabite, or any of their descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, not even to the 10th generation. So my question is, what is meant by the assembly of the Lord? My reason for asking is I thought on this and I read this and thought, hang on, wasn't Ruth a Moabite? She was. Uh, Therefore, David and several generations should not have been permitted, but as king of Israel, he was one of the cool kids who got to be in the assembly. So Interesting. So yeah, we know that Rahab, not Rahab, uh, Ruth is one of the descend, of the, one of the ancestors of King David. Really directly, it's I believe yeah. it's Ruth and Boaz have Obed, who has Jesse, who has David. So they're his great grandparents. Yeah, 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 great grandparents. There you go. Sorry, listeners, I shouldn't be doing math like that in my head. Um, so. This is actually really interesting rabbit trail. Uh, I loved loved being able to look at it. Well, cause it's one of, I love the questions where when you read it, you're like, oh, I never thought about that before. And I had never thought about this before. So getting to dive in, here's a few different things that we get. Number one, here's those verses directly. In Deuteronomy twenty three three through four, and I swear one of these days I will actually be done saying that word, but it's not Never. not the, not this week. Uh, no Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever, because they did not meet with you, uh, meet you with bread and with water on the way when you came out of Egypt, and because they hired against you Balaam the son of Beor from Pethor of Mesopotamia to curse you. So remember, classic Balaam, all that stuff is happening. God super not cool with it. So he's like, you know what? No, you guys are done. You don't get to be in the Lord's <laughs> assembly. Uh, we get this prophecy in Isaiah, which I thought was really interesting. It says, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me, and hold fast to my covenant, I will give my house. I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters I will not give them an everlasting name that shall be cut off and the foreigners who join themselves with the Lord to minister to him to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants everyone who keeps the sabbath and does not profane it and hold fast and holds fast to my covenant I didn't put verse 7 in there cuz again I'm looking like a fool today but The whole idea there is those are two groups of people who are in that passage of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy, uh, who are excluded from the, oh my God, I just flustered, I flustered myself, Aaron. All right, they're excluded from the meeting of the Lord. They're excluded from all of this, the assembly of the Lord. And yet in Isaiah, what we see is that the foreigners and the eunuchs are both people who God says, let them not be separated. There will come a day when they can worship just the same as everyone else. And then finally, this I'm going in chronological order here. We get this verse in Nehemiah or this story in Nehemiah where it says, on that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of the Lord. For they did not meet with the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them and yet got turned their curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel, all of those of foreign descent. Okay. So we get Moses slapping down the law. We get Isaiah, this is generations later before the fall of Jerusalem, prophesying that there will come a day when that is no longer a dividing line, mm-hmm. which, hey, by the way, we live in that day. That's hey, post Christ. Hollow. And then after Jerusalem is destroyed and the Israelites return back, rebuild the walls, rebuild the temples, this is what's happening in Nehemiah. They read that passage again, and then they separate out the Moabites. Okay. So this is kind of an interesting, you can trace that, that law and it's kind of what's being said about it throughout Mm -hmm. the Old Testament. So a few different things on this. Number one, the assembly of the Lord seems to refer to the worship gathering of the people of Israel, not to joining the nation themselves. So because you were excluded from the assembly of the Lord, that does not mean you couldn't be an Israelite. It doesn't mean you couldn't worship God. It means in this very specific way, you could not. Yeah. Um, As we see the progression of is of the Israel law. This is given, and then it is shown that there will one day be a, a time where the provision does not apply, which is the New Covenant, and then the people re-upping it in the post-exilic period. Um, so, as far as why, so this is the second question. Ruth was a Moabite. We know this for sure because it says Ruth was a Moabite and they went to Moab. <laughs> uh, and then she marries. Well, first it's is it Malon? Yeah, Malon. She marries Malon. He dies, and then she goes and she marries Boaz. They have. Obed, who has Jesse, who has David, so that means all of the Davidic kings are descended from Ruth, so they all have Moabite blood in them, and so does Jesus. So, kind of like it's, it's kind of a big deal. Yep. Uh, the best answer that I could find seems to be it's not explicitly stated, so you're kind of having to you're having to infer this from other laws that we have given. Is that women were not considered to bring forward the Moabite heritage, and for I was thinking about this, it reminds me of. That story in Deuteronomy, where hey, I said it right. Oh my gosh! And you did it right.
1: Oh my! You just got to stop thinking about it. This had to be the
0: the last time. Is when that's the last time I'm going to say it, and I said it correctly. Um, But in the fifth book of the Pentateuch, there's a (laughs) (laughs) there's a lot that's given down, and you'll remember because a, a woman comes to Moses, and she talks about well, her and her sisters, right? Their father has died, and he can't leave them inheritance, and so he should leave them. He should leave the daughters, his inheritance. And Mo's like, you know what? That's a good point. That should absolutely happen. And then they ask, well, when we marry, what happens to our land? Because remember, we just talked about in Joshua, the land is very specific. Yeah. like the And it's not allowed to move from tribe to tribe. And so when these... if I forgot what tribe they were in, but let's say for the sake of discussion, they were in the tribe of Judah, and then they marry someone from the tribe of Simeon. Uh, well, their land would not go over. To the tribe of Simeon, it would have to stay in yeah. the tribe of Judah because they were, were now a part of the tribe of Simeon. Um, they transferred exactly, so exactly, yeah. And so, in in Israeli reckoning of how they would list off genealogies, it's not like, oh yeah, I'm half Jude, Judean and half Simeon. Simeon. Simonian? I don't know how you'd say that. Ben- Benjamites? Anyway. Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy. <laughs> but anyway, you wouldn't be seen as having both of those things. You would have moved from one tribe into the other, yeah. and now you're part of that tribe. And so the, the implication being that perhaps that is the way that the law worked with when Ruth was a Moabite and she became an Israelite, she was now an, an Israelite. Israelite yeah. Exactly. Jinx, so,
1: you yeah. me a coat? Just kidding. Evan, Evan, Evan. No, yeah, thank you. All right. Ooh, now we can finish the
0: podcast. Uh, so that is kind of the idea there. And I also wrote, I think it's, it's just a cool that I think God specifically chooses Ruth to be an ancestor to David and Jesus to show Isaiah's prophecy coming true as well. Hmm. And there's just, a, a, the, the genealogy of Jesus is just a fascinating thing. Both of them oh, yeah, in Matthew really and Luke. Is. Because there's so many, like in them, there's Rahab, who is a prostitute, and then there's Ruth, who is a Moabite woman. Um, there's a bunch of people who are kind of just kind of met Bathsheba yep. is in there, Solomon's in there. Like there's a bunch of people who are really messed up. They wouldn't have been the first choices. Um, but we see how God works yep. all of that together and that the the culmination, the the word main the word made flesh is kind of a mixture of all yeah. of these great and all of this bad and all of this, and even like great people with bad blood, I guess. It's, I don't know if that's a, yeah. that's a weird way to no, put it. No, it totally makes sense. Yeah. So I just, th- I just think it's really cool that that seems to be part of what God is showing
1: there yeah. as well. Yeah, and I think it's really, I think you're, I, I mean, I would agree with your assessment if I can be professionally intelligent about it. But I, I think there's a lot of truth to the the moment. I mean, it's an, it's an unfortunate reality of the ancient times, but women were not viewed as the primary... Of anything, they were viewed as property, or they were viewed as secondary to to the husband. So it makes sense when when uh, Ruth would get married in or would marry Boaz, she was then adopted and tra- her, in essence, her citizenship transferred yeah. to the people of Israel. Um, and 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 so the, the the whole idea of dual citizenship, for the lack of a better way to say it, just to try and provide simply, simplicity for you listening, is that it just wasn't a concept. It was, I'm, I'm identifying with the male head, head of my family. Everything I have is now in that filter. So, and I think the, I think the community or communication of, um, the transfer of property is a really good way to understand that too. So I thought that was a really good point. So, but, so yeah.
0: Hopefully hopefully that answered your question. It's a great so, question though. Yeah. I, I, again, I love the questions that make me think of something I've never thought about yep. before. So thank well you. Thank you for sending that in. Yeah. Well, that wraps it up for this week's episode of let's read the Bible. As a reminder, we are a podcast of the Grove church, but we're not the only resource of the Grove church. You can find all of our other resources on our website, grove.church. Um, and also if you want to financially contribute to the ministry that the Grove church does, You can do that on our website. There's a give button in the upper right hand corner. And hey, thanks so much for listening.
1: Have a great day.